Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. My name is Henry Lavikutkola, and I'm the president of the Cornell Political Union, um, Cornell's premier nonpartisan political student organization. We are committed to elevating minority voices, promoting respectful discourse, and reaching across political divisions to identify and find common ground. We're excited to be partnering with the Intergenerational Politics podcast to bring you tonight's event, a conversation with U.S. Representative Adam Schiff uh, from California's 28th Congressional District. Representative Schiff has served in the House since 2001. Uh, and currently serves the chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Representative Schiff reached national prominence for his role as a lead impeachment manager in the impeachment of President Donald Trump this January. I want to extend my organization's immense gratitude to Representative Schiff for taking time out of his undoubtedly busy schedule to speak to us tonight, um, and to the Intergenerational Politics, Politics Podcast uh, for working with us to plan uh, and organize this event. With that, I'd like to hand it over to the two hosts of Intergenerational Politics. Awesome. Thank you so much, Henry. Um, so welcome to Intergenerational Politics, a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant to all generations. Um, this is Victor Xi. I'll be an incoming freshman next year at UCLA, um, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden here in Illinois, and also co-hosts this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. I met Victor when we were both candidates for being a Biden delegate. And I'm also the author of The Watergate Girl, which I hope you'll all read. Uh, it's about my experience as the only woman on the trial team for the Watergate trial. I also served as general counsel of the Army in the Carter administration, and I'm now an MSNBC legal analyst. So we're very excited to be with you today. Also, you may know I'm known for my pins, and today I'm wearing a big bear in honor of Cornell. Victor is wearing a different pin. I'll let him tell you about his pin. Yeah, so we got inter uh, we got matching intergenerational politics uh, pin. So um, I'm wearing my intergenerational politics pin, although I'm not known for my pins whatsoever. <laughs> Today we come to you live virtually from Cornell University for a very special episode of intergenerational politics. Um, before we start our podcast, I just want to thank Henry and everyone else at Cornell for hosting us tonight. It's been over a month since it became apparent that Donald Trump lost the presidency. And it's only days until Monday when the Electoral College makes Biden's victory official. During this period, we have witnessed President Trump doing blatant attempts to subvert the will of the people and our democracy. This episode of intergenerational politics will dive into Trump's conduct and what laws are needed to prevent a future repeat, as well as looking at the results of the 2020 congressional races, the lessons we can learn from those races, the Georgia runoff, and the 2022 midterms, and what it all means to the future of both the Democratic and Republican parties. We are so honored to be joined by one of my heroes from the impeachment hearings, uh, Representative Adam Schiff. Uh, he's already been introduced to you, but I, I wanna also stress that he has been chair of the United States House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, a very, very important role. And that led him to be leading the impeachment investigation and he also served as the chief prosecutor in the trial before the Senate. So thank you so much, Congressman Schiff, 
We really appreciate, I know how busy Congress is right now, and we appreciate your taking the time. Um, thank you to everyone in the audience who has submitted questions already. Some of them have been woven into my questions and Victor's questions. And then we will have time at the end to ask questions that you put in the chat feature right now. So we hope we'll get lots more questions and let's get started right now. First question from Victor. All right, so um, I want to uh, first begin by talking about the 2018 midterm election in which um, the Democrats gained an overwhelming majority in the House. Um, as you know, Congressman Schiff, more women got elected, turnout increased, especially among my generation, which as you know, deviates from precedent. And while Democratic candidates like Beto O'Rourke, Stacey Abrams, and Andrew Gillum lost, um, their races were much closer than ever before, which I think um, is kind of an indication that we do remain competitive in some of those states like Georgia, Texas, and Florida. So I guess first to kick us off, um, when you look at the midterm elections in 2018, what made it possible for Democrats to take back the House and flip so many red seats? First of all, uh, Victor and Jill, thank you so much for inviting me to join you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And Henry, thank you for your uh, efforts to bring us together tonight. Uh, a lot to talk about these days. And uh, Jill, you and I have some uh, notes to compare with our respective uh, Watergate uh, and Trumpgate uh, experiences. Um, in terms of the uh, the midterm election, you know what what uh, resulted in such an incredible blue wave. Um, you know, I think back, frankly, to the genesis of that wave, uh, which was the Women's March, uh, which took place immediately after Trump's inauguration. Uh, there, you had that that puny inauguration, uh, followed by that massive Women's March, uh, and I remember thinking to myself as as uh, marches led by women took place all over the country, whether it would be possible to maintain that level of activism and passion and commitment for another two years until the midterms. Uh, and what we saw was the answer was yes. Uh, in fact, that momentum only grew. Uh, and I remember along the way, different mileposts where I said to myself, there is really something happening here that's going to be powerful uh, in the midterms. One such milepost was I was on a flight back to DC from Los Angeles and the woman sitting next to me uh, recognized me and, and started to uh, engage me in conversation. And she said, I am part of an 11,000 woman strong group called Law Mamas. We are lawyers, we are mothers and we're pissed and we're gonna do something about it. Uh, and I said, I believe you are. And, uh, and I thought to myself, if 11,000 women who are lawyers found each other online and have organized themselves, there's something organic going on here. Uh, this wasn't a top-down midterm strategy where the Democratic Party was running anything, everything or anything. It was really a bottom-up strategy uh, of innumerable groups like Indivisible and Swing Left and, uh, and Civic Sundays and uh, you, know, you, you name it, the list goes on and on. Um, and that carried the day. Uh, but I'll tell you this, Victor, that um, the midterm results were so striking, um, our turnout was so strong, that it cemented an idea that frankly, many of us had believed in, um, that we would find uh, would not to would prove not to be true in the presidential election. And that is the idea that whenever turnout is high, it favors Democrats. Um, that was certainly my conviction going into those midterms. It seemed very realized during those midterms, but we found something out uh, a bit different when it came to the presidential election, when both parties were energized to turn out. 
Yeah, for sure. And I, I think one kind of through line with what we saw in 2018, um, especially when compared to 2016, I think is Democrats, you know, in 2016, there was so much reflection after Hillary Clinton lost. And one thing that kind of observing from the Biden campaign, which I was on um, in 2020, was just the importance of Democrats to really stress the importance of organizing. And I think um, organizing back in 2016, I didn't have too much political experience then, but it seemed like now, and especially in 2018, that it wasn't so much just about organizing. So calling voters, uh, canvassing, it was more about kind of building those connections and then sustaining those um, connections. So, um, you know, you mentioned what kind of went wrong, I guess, what went differently in 2020. So um, I want to move on to the November election in 2020. And um, let's take a look back. So, you know, Joe Biden took back the presidency, did particularly well in traditionally Republican states. But when it came to the Senate and House races, um, the results weren't as favorable for Democrats, um, despite having raised record-breaking donations. Um, so I guess my first question is, like, what changed between now and compared to 2018? I would say a few things. Uh, one is a longer term trend that was really underway well before 26, uh, 2016, 2018, yeah. or 2020. Uh, and that is the way we get our information is increasingly balkanized and polarized. Uh, you know, when I was your age, uh, and that was a long time ago, uh, Victor, um, I remember rushing back to my college dormitory to see Walter Cronkite's last broadcast. That was a time when there was a large body, a body of agreed upon fact, and we might differ with what to do with those facts, but we at least agreed there were, were facts. Um, then we moved to a, a model where people would tune into the news they wanted to hear. Uh, they would tune into Fox if they were conservative or MSNBC if they were liberal uh, or CNN if they weren't sure, uh, but they selected the news they wanted. Um, now the news is selected for us by algorithms that know our likes and dislikes. We don't have to even pick the channel anymore. It's picked for us. Uh, and that has had the effect of really making it increasingly difficult to talk to each other, but from a party point of view, has really uh, made the parties into different tribes, uh, where it is very difficult to get people to depart from their tribe when they get to the ballot box. Now, in the case of Donald Trump, and this election was a referendum on Donald Trump, um, uh, there were a number of people that were willing to depart from their party because they thought he was such a, a destructive president. But down ticket, they were not willing to, to part company with their party. Um, there were not many uh, people willing to split the ticket. Uh, and I think for some of our vulnerable House incumbents, they'd had a couple of years where they could make the case why it was so important for voters to split the ticket, but some of them could not. Uh, and for our challengers in particular who hadn't held office and therefore didn't have the opportunity to make that case uh, through their experience, um, they, they, uh, they were not successful. Um, they couldn't get people to split the ticket. And so um, it was you know, uh, compounded, I think, by the, the shock at how wrong the polling was. But the, the polling um, uh, debacle uh, is one thing, that's a diagnostic. Uh, the bigger question is why weren't we more successful? Um, we were very successful, obviously at the presidential level uh, with a commanding electoral college victory ultimately and an even more commanding popular vote victory. Um, but down ballot, um, I think it was still largely a referendum, uh, a party line kind of election, uh, particularly among those voters who only turned out because of Donald Trump former against them. Um, and so uh, I, I do think, though, apart from that wave-like phenomenon where you had a wave at the top that crested for Joe Biden, 
and an undercurrent that moved in the opposite direction that helped uh, House and Senate Republicans. Uh, you know, apart from those dynamics, uh, you know, I will say one other thing that I think is vitally important for the Democratic Party's future and, uh, and, and also for the country's future, and that is Donald Trump, uh, when he wasn't appealing to people's bigotry, um, was appealing to people's sense of aggrievement that they'd left, been left behind. Um, and I think it's vitally important for the Democratic Party to be speaking to everyone in the country, every part of the country, uh, and to particularly speak to those economic issues that people um, are so uh, desperately concerned about uh, through globalization and automation, the loss of millions of jobs, uh, and offer solutions uh, that will help every part of the country. Uh, so apart from those you know, tribal instincts and apart from the, the surge in turnout uh, for both parties, on the substance, uh, we're gonna have to do a better job making the case why we have been, are now, and will always be the party of working people. For sure, yeah. And we definitely wanna get into polarization, which is something that you mentioned later on in the podcast. But um, for all of our viewers and listeners um, watching this podcast, um, I do wanna make a quick book suggestion. Um, there's this one book that I recently read called How They Eat Tweeds. And it's basically written by uh, two political science professors. And it's all about, um, I think something that I guess befuddles me and probably a lot of people is just how Republicans can um, win elections by representing the economic elite, um, despite the kind of electric growing more diverse. And it's all about how they use tools like um, radicalization, resentment, and rigging um, to maintain power. But um, one thing that we had Congressman um, or Congressman uh, Clyburn on the show, who's also the House Whip, and um, one of the things that he said on the podcast was how slogans like "defund the police" or the Green New Deal um, hurt the outcome of the election. So I think what many Democrats are curious about is, I guess, how much validity does that have, and um, does like the phraseology within the Democratic Party, from its centrist and um, progressive wings, um, did that cost any seats in Congress? Well, in the way I look at it, uh, we should not allow ourselves to be defined by the attacks against us. Uh, and, and so I don't think that we can ascribe, uh, you know, the loss of certain House seats uh, or our failure to pick up more seats in the Senate uh, to uh, the, the fact that others would define us in ways that we don't define ourselves. Uh, it's really incumbent on us to make the affirmative case. Uh, and, and so, you know, I happen to think that we're a large diverse and talented party uh, that in which all of our members are bringing something to the table. And we need to make sure we tap the talents of all those members rather than looking to them as, as reasons why we didn't win more. Uh, you know, the, the Green New Deal, which I support, for example, uh, championed by Alexia Ocasio-Cortez, she is one of the most uh, capable, uh, uh, bright and talented new members of Congress. Uh, she has a tremendous following among young people. Uh, I think part of the reason why Joe Biden did well in places is because those young people turned out uh, inspired by her example. Uh, we need to make use of her talent. Um, we need to make use of the talent of the, the Connor Lambs and the Abigail Spanbergers and Alyssa Slotkins and those members that come from very conservative districts that also bring something very important to the table. They show how to win in very difficult Trump districts. Uh, so our party has to be big enough for both. Uh, and if we're, we're smart, we'll make use of the talents of both. Um, and, uh, uh, and so uh, in terms of, you know, were the Republicans successful in labeling Democrats as socialists or, or whatnot, um, plainly, those arguments resonated uh, with certain voters. Uh, and we're going to have to overcome that. And we're going to have to demonstrate what we're for. 
Uh, and we're also, frankly, going to have to make a more powerful case uh, of what our adversaries represent. Um, and because, uh, you know, campaigns are, are both what are you about and what's the contrast with your opponent? Uh, so um, I think we've got work to do in, in both areas in defining ourselves and not letting the other side define us, uh, but also setting out the contrast for the American people. Uh, and you're absolutely right. You know, while Donald, while Donald Trump and my GOP colleagues talk a good game about the forgotten people, um, I don't know whether they've ever remembered them or identified with them or done anything to help them. Uh, their policies and their actions are designed to help the wealthiest among us and large corporations. Uh, so their actions belie very different priorities and we should be able to make that case. You know, one, one final point if I could, and that is Donald Trump wrecked the economy. Um, and we should have been able to make that case much more effectively because he did. Um, the pandemic didn't have to be this disaster that it has been in this country with now almost 300,000 Americans dead. Um, that was significantly due to his incompetent management, his narcissistic insistence that everything was about him even while people were dying. Uh, and as a result, lots of people died and our economy cratered. Uh, and so we should have been able to make the powerful connection between the two. Uh, the idea that, that Donald Trump uh, enjoyed a polling advantage on the economy um, you know, I think is uh, points to a real failing in terms of the case that Democrats made because he's been a disaster for the economy, inherited a good one from the Obama administration, and he ran it into the ground. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to turn it over to Jill because we have a lot more to discuss. Um, Jill, I'll hand it to you. Well, first of all, I'm very glad that you mentioned uh, Walter Cronkite and the fact that in the old days, we had one set of facts. And that made a big difference because I think if we had had the silos of MSNBC and Fox back then, the outcome of Watergate might have been very different. There's no way that Richard Nixon would have resigned. Uh, so that's an important thing. And we're going to be talking more about messaging because both Victor and I agree with what you just said, which is that the Democrats must make a better message uh, and communicate that they are the party that will help all these people not Donald Trump and the Republicans. But I, I wanna go back to the election because one of the things that was most surprising to me isn't that Biden won by over 7 million votes, that he flipped red states blue, but that 70 plus million voters were still supporting Donald Trump even after the COVID uh, epidemic killed so many people, even after the economy was destroyed as you've pointed out. So. What does that mean that there are still over 70 million people who believe everything he says, who believe that the election was stolen, that he's still going to win it, even though even his Supreme Court has turned down cases that have been brought to them uh, to overturn the election. But what does that mean for the continued power of Trump and Trumpism? Uh, Jill, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I completely agree with you uh, about Watergate uh, and the Nixon administration. That is, um, I've always maintained that if Richard Nixon had Fox News, he would probably have never been forced to leave office. Um, and, you know, that's a big part of the issue. I mean, not just Fox, obviously. Fox is right. uh, only one part of that, uh, you know, media ecosphere. Uh, that includes, you know, publications like Daily Caller and Breitbart and whatnot. It now includes that inane OAN network, which uh, 
bills itself as the conservative alternative Fox because Fox isn't right wing enough. Um, and, and, you know, the broader phenomenon that uh, in social media now conservatives get different news than progressives. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that um, this is part of the reason why um, over 70 million people voted for a president who time after time after time was proven to, to lie, um, who was proven to be corrupt, who was proven to uh, be nepotistic, um, who was proven to be incompetent. Um, the evidence was, was so overwhelming and graphic and frequent, um, it's hard to uh, appreciate how, how could 70 million people still support that guy. Uh, you know, I could understand, I think all of us could, um, the first time how people would take a bet on this New York billionaire who claimed that he was beholden to no one, he was gonna clean up the swamp and he would look after people who had been forgotten. But four years later, when he made, made there, when he turned the, uh, you know, whatever swamp he was referring to into an utter cesspool, uh, when he demonstrated he could care less about, uh, about poverty or the poor, uh, or different parts of the country. I mean, even admitting at his rallies, he wouldn't be there. Why would he even go to such a place uh, if he didn't suddenly need them in his reelection? Um, how is this possible? And I, I really think that uh, it's because we live in two information, different information worlds. And, and one other factor I would say, Jill, which we see on such abhorrent display right now, and that is the complicity of the leadership of the GOP. Uh, today, over 100 Republican members of the House joined in uh, calling on the court, essentially, to uh, deny electors uh, to Joe Biden. Um, more than 100 members of the House of Representatives essentially said they uh, don't care as much about their constitutional obligations as they do to the person of the president. Um, and, you know, a party leadership that is willing to enable that uh, has also, I think, um, kept a large part of the country in the thrall of this very flawed, uh, soon to be former president. Uh, and I've always felt that- I, I was- when, I was just saying, I've always felt that when, the, when this part of history is written, some of the most damning language will be reserved for those members of the Congress uh, who enabled this president's uh, uh, tearing down of our democracy. I was distraught when I saw the information about the 100 members of the House going with that lawsuit. Uh, I mean, it's horrible. And you've mentioned both the fact that we used to have an agreed set of facts, and we could always make arguments based on the facts. And you're entitled to whatever arguments you want. You are not entitled to your own facts. Um, But we've also narrowed the... um, opportunities for bipartisanship because of gerrymandering. So it's both the silos of media and the fact that districts are now drawn in a way that you don't have to compromise. You have selected your own voters in the same way that you're selecting your own facts. And that's really a problem. But it does raise the issue that you mentioned, which is messaging. And now with um, only a few weeks left to the vote in Georgia, which is crucial to whether Uh, President Biden will be able to be a president for all America, whether he will be able to get done the things that he will be able to get done if he has a Democratic Senate as well as a Democratic House. So what have we learned uh, both about bipartisan compromise 
for the next Congress? And what should the candidates in Georgia do to get out a message that can win over some of the Trump voters? And I hope that there are some Trump supporters listening to this uh, right now and that you're hearing, uh, we want to reach out. We want facts to guide how you vote and what you believe. And so hopefully, how do we get those facts to people? Jill, you know, it's a very important question. And, uh, you know, we see it implicated in what's happening right this moment in Congress, which is we're trying to get a relief bill done uh, to get help to millions of American families and small businesses. Uh, the reality is if, if we have to wait until Joe Biden is sworn in uh, to have a relief package, there are going to be lots of businesses that are already closed that will never reopen their doors. Uh, and there are going to be families cut off from unemployment compensation over the holidays who are really gonna to struggle to put food on the table. We already see cars lined up for miles uh, at food banks. Um, there is a group of Democrats and Republicans in the Senate that came together and proposed a $900 billion compromise. Now that's a lot less than I think we need. Uh, I think the true need is probably double or triple that amount. But, but nonetheless, I support the compromise uh, as does the Democratic leadership because doing something less now is more important uh, than having to wait till later, even if you can do more later. Um, Mitch McConnell has decided, you know, he's not, he's not for it. Um, now, I don't know what to do about that, except to point out how much pain that's going to inflict on American families. Uh, I would much rather get to yes than have to make the case against Mitch McConnell. But, but right now, he is the impediment. Uh, and I would hope that in, in Georgia, our candidates are making the case that they too are willing to work in a bipartisan way to meet the needs, the urgent needs of the American people during this pandemic, to make sure they can get vaccinated, to make sure they can get treated if they get sick, to make sure that they can get a paycheck, uh, that they can keep a roof over their heads, um, that, you know, that the virus doesn't discriminate among states or cities, doesn't discriminate between Democrats and Republicans. We're all in this together. Uh, and this is an existential threat uh, to, to many, many families around the country. So that's the appeal I would make. Uh, and, you know, more broadly, uh, I would say that uh, uh, the fundamental challenge we face is that the economy is not working for millions and millions of Americans. Uh, this combination of globalization and automation uh, is resulting in a, a restructuring of the workplace that is every bit as disruptive as the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and we need to make sure that we uh, bring about changes so that everyone has an opportunity, uh, wherever they are in the country, in whatever family and whatever background they have, they have a chance to make a good living. Uh, and that, to me, um, is neither a conservative nor liberal message. Uh, it is a populist message, but it's one that, that ought to have broad appeal and I think is central to a, a bright future for the country. So I have a, a dozen more questions about messaging, and maybe you'll come back um, for a separate episode just about that and also about the power of Mitch McConnell and what can be done about that. But I'm going before turning it back to Victor, I want to ask one, one small question about the trial in the Senate. And you were the chief prosecutor. To my mind, you presented a flawless case. It was unrebutted evidence that was persuasive and well-organized. And in any court in America, a jury would have returned a guilty verdict. And so 
I just want to know how you felt at the moment of hearing the verdict by the senators. And for me, I was, I, I almost was in tears because they don't say not impeachable. They say not guilty. And even senators who had admitted that he had done the things that he was charged with voted not guilty. So how did how do you deal with that? How do you walk away from something that major um, after working so hard on it and hearing not guilty? Well, you know, it's interesting because I ended up uh, feeling quite uplifted uh, at the conclusion of the trial for one reason, um, Mitt Romney. Uh, you know, we posed the question during the trial because we knew that the senators were not gonna convict and they certainly were not gonna convict by the two thirds required to remove the president. But we posed the question, was there one among them uh, that had the courage to say enough to, to be the David versus Goliath? And it turns out there was. Uh, and uh, you know, I used the expression during the trial that uh, one person of courage makes a majority. Um, I, for me, what, what Mitt Romney did and what he said, and not just Mitt Romney, but other courageous senators like Doug Jones, um, who, who realized that you know, it might very well cost them their reelection and people like Joe Manchin and others, um, they for me validated the belief the founders expressed that we didn't need to be ruled by a despot, that we were capable of self-governance. Uh, so, uh, you know, in that one act of courage, I found reason for optimism. Um, but I have to say I am particularly struck right now um, with those senators who back then, as you point out, Jill, didn't disagree the president was guilty. Many of them, like Lamar Alexander said, when they were trying to justify not calling witnesses, well, you know, they basically already proved the case 13 different ways. Do we need them to prove it 14 different ways? Um, but we think we should let the voters decide. Well, where are they now that the voters did decide? Well, 106 of them in the House are saying, no, we don't even want the voters to decide. We basically want this president and we don't care that much about our democracy. Um, I think the through line here, Jill, is that for any number of my colleagues, um, all the talk of their ideological beliefs, all their, their, uh, the beating of their chests uh, over the principles enshrined in our constitution, none of that really mattered um, as much as the maintenance of power. Um, that, that, that's a, you know, a terrible epiphany to reach, but I don't know how to explain those 106 or whatever number of signatures mm -hmm. of Republican members trying to overturn the election right now. Um, it's really a, a uh, dark point in our history. Do you think that now that Trump will be gone, his rhetoric and his influence as president uh, will diminish to the point where there is a possibility for compromise with uh, Republicans and Democrats, that we'd at least talk to each other? Uh, well, I do. I, you know, I think that, um, uh, well, first of all, uh, I don't know whether Donald Trump is going to go into that uh, good night. Uh, it sounds like he may very well announce that he's going to run in 2024 on Inauguration Day. Um, and if he continues to hector from the sidelines, as it appears that he will, uh, and he's raised a ton of money to allow him to amplify that hectoring, um, will Republicans still feel um, terrified of crossing him? 
certainly many will, uh, but some won't. Uh, some will increasingly decide that uh, they don't want their reputations destroyed along with his, um, and, and, and they will show increasing levels of independence. You know, one good test, uh, and Jill, you mentioned at the outside of the podcast, we, we, we would uh, talk about some of the reform that's necessary. Uh, I've introduced a uh, Protecting Our Democracy Act to curb a lot of the abuses that we've seen, our own uh, post-Watergate reforms, if you will. Um, one true test uh, is whether Republicans will support that next year uh, when they don't uh, have to worry about uh, as much about presidential tweets attacking them. Uh, even if they have to worry about ex-presidential tweets attacking them. We, we had, that, that was going to be my next question was, yeah. what are the things that are at the top of your list in terms of uh, laws that need to be passed, norms that need to be made into laws since the norms have been ignored? Uh, what, what would be the top few things that you think we need to do to save democracy? You know, the, the, the uh, Particular Democracy Act has probably a dozen different reforms that strengthen the Hatch Act to protect against the president dragooning the federal workforce into being an arm of the campaign and uh, to protect whistleblowers and inspector generals to enforce the emoluments clause so that presidents can enrich themselves uh, at the national expense. But frankly, the two that stand out to me uh, among that long list uh, as being the most important are... Uh, and one seems, you know, relatively uh, benign, and that is the expeditious enforcement of congressional subpoenas, um, so that Congress can do its oversight, so that Congress can be an equal branch, a co-equal branch of government. There can't be meaningful oversight if a president like Trump can simply say, "Stonewall all the subpoenas," and so providing an expedited method for court enforcement, I think, is really important. Um, but second, uh, independence of the Justice Department. Um, when the president, uh, you know, dangled pardons uh, in front of people who would lie for him and ultimately gave those pardons, um, when the president uh, sought to shield uh, uh, people from liability and make cases go away, like the case against Mike Flynn, that was bad enough. But what was far worse and far more dangerous is when the president and Bill Barr sought to use the Justice Department to go after the president's enemies. Um, and so uh, this is both, I think, one of the most important things that needs to be reformed, but also the most difficult because there are limits on what we can constitutionally require or prevent um, when it comes to the independence of that department. And, and I'm glad to see the president-elect uh, already make such strong statements about restoring the independence of that department. For sure. Um, I, I just want to, for our audience, um, so we had um, Steve Schmidt as well as Rick Wilson on the podcast a couple of months ago, and um, you mentioned something about tweets, and I think uh, Rick Wilson kind of puts it best and succinctly, which is um, Republicans in Congress have this symptom called FOMT, uh, fear of mean tweets. Um, and I think I just wanted to raise that um, before we end this podcast segment. But um, I just want to end by playing a video, um, which seems like forever ago, from your closing argument um, during the impeachment proceedings. But here, right is supposed to matter. It's what's made us the greatest nation on earth. No constitution can protect us. Right doesn't matter anymore. And you know, you can't trust this president to do what's right 
for this country. You can trust he will do what's right for Donald Trump. He'll do it now. He's done it before. He'll do it for the next several months. He'll do it in the election if he's allowed to. This is why if you find him guilty, you must find that he should be removed. Because right matters. Because right matters. And the truth matters. Otherwise, we are lost. Like Jill said, um, I, I think what you said during the impeachment um, proceedings, really, I think when future generations look back on that, they'll remember you as someone who really upheld our Constitution and our basic values when Republicans wouldn't. Um, so since this is an intergenerational politics uh, podcast, um, do you have any advice for my generation, many of whom are here today um, as students, about the importance of my generation getting involved in politics? Um, well, thank you. Uh, I, I do, although it's advice, frankly, that you and so many other young people are already following, and, and it's what gives me such optimism about the future, uh, and that is that uh, we need you. We need you to be engaged. Uh, you know, we've, we've made a hell of a mess of things. Uh, my generation has made a hell of a mess of things, uh, and, you know, when it comes to climate and what it do, we're doing to our planet, when it comes to our democracy, um, when it comes to making sure that people have access to healthcare, uh, we've made a heck of a mess of things. Uh, and we need bright, young, idealistic people determined uh, to bring about a better world, to be engaged. Uh, and one of the things that, that really gives me such great encouragement is I have been desperately concerned over the last several years and predating the Trump administration, but with the, the deterioration in the level of civility in politics, just how ugly, nasty it's become, that it would dissuade young people from uh, careers in public service, that it would turn them off to any involvement uh, in civic affairs. But it has not had that effect at all. Um, and we've seen a new generation of young people come to the fore determined uh, to bring about uh, a better world. And I'll tell you, I serve with many of them. Uh, the, the freshman class of new members, a lot of them very young, are the single best new class of members we've ever had. Uh, tragically, we've lost some of those new members, but many of them remain. Uh, and when I met the candidates who were running this cycle, even though many of them were unsuccessful, they too were just extraordinary. So when I see the people that are gravitating, not running away from politics right now, uh, young people like yourself, it gives me every reason for, for confidence and optimism. Uh, we are gonna get through this. We've been through worse in our history in the past. We've been through more difficult times. This too shall pass. Um, and I have every confidence that the next generation isn't gonna put up with this crap. Uh, they're not gonna put up with racism. They're not gonna put up with, uh, with, with destroying the planet. Uh, and they're impatient in the best way you can be impatient. They're impatient for something better. So um, stay at it, be engaged, get involved. Um, and, uh, and you can uh, bring about the change we so desperately need. That is wonderful advice. And that, I think that perfectly wraps up our podcast segment of today's event. So um, we do want to get into questions that our audience submitted via the chat, uh, the chat box or um, through our pre um, uh, kind of sent out form. But um, Jill, if you want to ask the first question, I'm just going to scroll through some of oh, these yeah, chat I, questions. Yeah, I'm not sure how much time we have because there are such great questions. I'll start with one uh, from someone who said, 
Holding the GOP and Trump accountable for their crimes is critical to the future success of our democracy. Do you agree? And if so, what is the plan to make that happen? I think this is going to be among the most difficult uh, balancing acts, frankly, of the new administration and the new attorney general. And that is, uh, to what degree do you pursue accountability for misdeeds and wrongdoing in the current administration? Uh, and what degree do you prioritize the need for healing and to move on? Uh, I think the reality is you can't answer that question in the abstract, uh, that the new attorney general is going to have to look at uh, individual allegations and the seriousness of them uh, and make very case-specific decisions. You know, one of the decisions, for example, that the Justice Department will have to grapple with is in the Southern District of New York, uh, Michael Cohen was indicted and sent to jail for his participation in part in a campaign fraud scheme in which he was directed and coordinated by individual number one. Well, individual number one is the president of the United States. Uh, and so the next Justice Department will have to answer the question of whether the guy who did the directing and coordinating should get a pass when the guy who was directed and coordinated went to jail. Um, that is just one of the many difficult questions that I don't envy uh, the, the new administration uh, um, having to answer. But, uh, but in terms of the role in Congress, where we don't have the ability to prosecute or not prosecute, uh, there is some work that will, will, will need to go on. I'm in the midst, for example, in our committee of an investigation into the Department of Homeland Security, uh, whether it was using its intelligence apparatus to spy on protesters, um, whether it was uh, de-emphasizing threats to our election to suit the president's political narrative or hyping the threat of terrorism at the southern border for the same purpose. Um, we're not going to conclude that by the end of the year, much as I would like to. So some of that work uh, in Congress of accountability will have to go on. Um, but at the, the same time, uh, at, the, at the most important level, uh, the, the President of the United States will have to make the decision uh, how much accountability um, uh, needs to be weighed against the need to move forward. Um, I do think that the situation is different than Watergate. Um, the, the period of corruption is much more extensive and much more uh, cross-cutting, and the danger of setting a precedent of immunity is also, uh, I think, more deeply implicated. But, but again, I think it's going to have to be very case-specific. I'm glad you mentioned that because I now think that had we insisted on indicting at least after Nixon had resigned, that maybe this would not be where we're at, that we're paying the price for letting the president not be held accountable. Um, that's, that's for sure. Says um, one accusation I've seen about the Democratic Party is that they seem only to care about the presidential election, at least when it comes to voting, uh, with Re Republicans appearing to do much better in the House, Senate, and local elections. Uh, do you find this to be true? And if so, um, what, do you think can, uh, what do you think we can do to get Democrats to care about every election? Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that as a general matter. Uh, certainly as a House member, I hope that's not true. But if you look at the midterm elections where there is no presidential race, um, if you look at the last midterm, Democrats cared a lot about it. Uh, Democrats showed up in unprecedented numbers. Now, what you may be referring to or what, what the question may be referring to is when you are in a presidential election, how many Democrats um, merely vote at the top of the ticket and then lose interest uh, before they they they. Uh, uh, you know, punch the ballot card uh, for the lower tier races. Um, I don't know how much um, that was a factor in terms of fall off in Democratic vote. 
Um, but, I, but I will say this, and this is an analogous issue. Um, Republicans have spent the last 20 years investing in local elected officials, essentially creating a bench um, of Republican uh, city council members and school board members and aldermen uh, and town council members um, with the expectation that over time they would become state legislators and elected to Congress. Similarly, the Federalist Society has worked at cultivating young lawyers with an eye to one day putting them on the Supreme Court as very conservative ideologic, ideological justices. Um, they have created a network of think tanks and other institutions to give an intellectual heft to policies uh, that are really, frankly, all about the money, but to clothe them in different garb. Um, Democrats really haven't built that kind of infrastructure until recently. Uh, we haven't invested as much in the farm team. Uh, and too often, and I think Stacey Abrams uh, has really been a leader uh, in countering this too often, uh, Democrats reach out around election time and then seem to forget engagement until the next election. Uh, as you were pointing out, Victor, at the very beginning of the podcast, it's essential that we establish a relationship with voters and keep that relationship um, you know, throughout the entire year and years and not just uh, when we need people to turn out at the polls. So those are things I think the party needs to work on. Thank you. So, and here's a question that I have to ask for two reasons. One is because I started out as an organized crime prosecutor, and the other is because it comes from a friend of mine who's an alum of Cornell, Lorraine Mandel. Uh, and she says that an NMSNBC commentator has suggested that Trump is like a mafia Don. And she wants to know, what do you think, uh, or what do you suggest is the power that Trump has on Republicans after leaving office? Does he have information, for example, on Lindsey Graham or Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz, who said he hated Donald Trump, said awful things about him, is now offering to go to the Supreme Court on his behalf. Um, what pressure is he bringing on them so that they have been reluctant to speak out against Donald Trump? Uh, you know, it's a great question. And, you know, to, to start out, is he like an organized crime figure? Yes, he is. Uh, you know, I, I, I keep thinking back to uh, James Comey's testimony way back in 2017, when he talked about how uh, he was struck by the, you know, sort of, uh, um, well, this may actually have been a, a reflection after, after that point, but he was struck by how the president operated like the organized crime figures that he encountered as a prosecutor. Uh, and, and he speaks that way and he acts that way. Um, he, you know, he, he would talk about Michael Cohen as a rat um, who was going to essentially roll over on him. And there ought to be a crime against rats. Um, whereas um, uh, Paul Manafort, his, you know, multiple convicted former campaign chair who was meeting secretly with Russian, an agent of, of Russian intelligence and providing polling data to them. Well, he's a, he's a, you know, a hell of a guy because he's not gonna, he's not gonna become a rat. Uh, and you know, with the one he dangles a pardon, with the other he dangles punishment. Um, and so yes, in innumerable ways, um, in his demanding of loyalty from people, not to the office, not to do good governance, but to him personally, um, he's just like an organized crime boss. What kind of hold does he have on Republican legislators, the Lindsey Grahams, et cetera? You know, I have to say, and I don't know whether this is good, bad, or indifferent. Um, the hold is their ambition. Um, the hold is their ambition. Uh, Lindsey Graham wants to be close to power. Um, Mike Pompeo wants to be president. 
Mike Pence wants to be president. Um, and others want to advance and uh, Mitch McConnell wants to win Senate races in Georgia so he can stay majority leader. Uh, it's all at the end of the day about their ambition. Uh, and they think that Trump will help them and crossing them, what's more, may be fatal to them. Uh, and one thing Trump has done well is retaliate. Uh, and whenever a Republican would step an inch over the line, uh, Trump would uh, come down on them hard. Uh, you know, I have to say, uh, Jill, uh, that it, uh, I, I think back continually with amusement about how you may recall during the trial, there was this faux outrage when I cited a CBS news story um, from a Republican source who had said that, you know, Republicans were worried that uh, uh, if they came out against the president, they, their, their heads would be on pikes. There was one question from a Cornell Political Union student um, who is a Republican who asks, his name is Brendan. Um, he asks, in hindsight, do you think the impeachment media cycle in January might have distracted from the spread of COVID-19 abroad and may have cost us valuable time in the pandemic preparation? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, and interestingly, uh, on this point, uh, I'm in agreement with the president, with, uh, in agreement with the president who said, no, he wasn't distracted by the impeachment uh, in terms of, of COVID. Uh, and I think you can see borne out uh, in Bob Woodward's book, the president acknowledging that he knew how deadly the virus was, uh, that he was deliberately talking it down. Uh, and so, um, you know, I think that uh, uh, the, the president can only blame uh, his own failures and inadequacies uh, for how he treated uh, the serious threat posed by the virus. Um, and, you know, the reality is that uh, we came into this pandemic better situated than any other country to handle a health crisis like this, uh, with some of the best scientists and epidemiologists, with an extensive healthcare system, uh, with experience in dealing with pandemics. Uh, we should have had among the lowest infection death rates in the industrialized world instead of the highest. Um, that is not a product of impeachment, that's a product of incompetence and negligence. It's the product of a president who uh, diminished a threat he knew was serious and life-threatening um, and has, uh, throughout the course of this pandemic, um, sent out the worst of messages about masks and social distancing, modeled the worst of behavior, uh, hosted super spreader rallies on the White House grounds. Uh, so no, I, I don't think uh, you can ascribe responsibility to anything but the, the flawed approach of the administration. Thank you. And before I ask the last question, what you said, um, I just pulled up my phone. I don't know if anyone's going to be able to see this. It's a smoke detector. And it came, this is from my Watergate colleague, Richard Benvenista. And it says, Trump smoke detectors, they stay silent so you don't panic. That was his reason for not revealing everything to us. So for the last question, this is from a Cornell Political Union student. And the, I'll read it. It says, Representative Schiff, I believe that it would be nice to get to know the man behind the politics. We have an active running community within CPU. So I was wondering if you could talk about how you have used running as a balance to your public life. <laughs> Why do you run? Uh, you know, that's a great question to end <laughs> on. Uh, I, and I, I've been uh, running again. Uh, it was uh, hard uh, during the impeachment uh, and, and uh, the last couple of years to do as much running as I would like. But the thing I love about running is, frankly, it literally beats your worries out of you. As you're pounding the pavement, it beats your worries out of you. 
Um, it, uh, you know, it, it helps you clear your head. Um, and I think the physical exhaustion is good. Uh, so, um, you know, I find it really uh, more rewarding than more tepid kind of exercise. Uh, and uh, um, I, I only wish I had more time uh, to do it. Uh, I took to doing triathlons uh, several years wow. ago wow. because, um, you know, I found that just consistently running uh, didn't agree always with my joints. But if I did cross training, like running and cycling and swimming, uh, it was better for me. Uh, so um, I look forward to uh, in the new administration, if I'm so fortunate uh, to, to actually being able to go back and train more than I have over the last few years. Uh, and, uh, and if I get myself in sufficiently decent shape, maybe to go for a, a run in those hills around Cornell with, uh, with the students. Awesome. Um, well, we want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Um, before I hand it to Henry to close off, you know, um, for anyone wondering how to listen to us, we are on all podcast platforms, so be sure to uh, catch us there. But um, thanks so much, Congressman Shea. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. And Henry, if you want to close it out. And I just have to oh, add that Jill. we're also yeah. on YouTube. We're also on YouTube if you want to watch uh, this episode or any of our past episodes or future ones. Yeah, thank you both, Victor and Jill. I really appreciated that. It was a great conversation. And, you know, thank you again, Congressman Schiff, for taking time out of your schedule to come and speak to us tonight, field some questions, talk with us tonight. Really appreciate it all. Um, for everybody here, it was great to see all of you. Great to see CPU members and new faces as well. Um, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your night. Um, and, you know, best of luck as we head into the finals period. And, you know, one final big thank you and round of applause for Congressman Schiff. Yes, a virtual round of applause. <laughs> And everyone stay safe, wear a mask, stay apart. Don't do anything foolish. <laughs> yes, for sure. All right. Well, thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.